We're going to pick up with chapter 20 in the study, Knowing the Living God, considering the attribute of the integrity of God. Other words would be the veracity of God, the truthfulness of God. Because this is this particular chapter is long, and because there's a lot of material here, I'm going to be pretty much just sticking straight to the material in the book. I've not added a whole lot of my own uh, in between. So if, if you have that, just keep your eye on it and we'll work through this. And, and as, we, as we just prayed, we'll trust that the Word of God will be uh, fruitful as we hear it. So then, the opening heading is the integrity of God. The word integrity comes from the Latin word integer, which refers to anything complete or whole. When used with reference to God, the word means that God's character is whole, flawless, or unimpaired. There are three words that may be employed to describe God's integrity. Number one, God is true. That is, He is real, not fabricated, invented, or an imitation. Two, He is truthful. In other words, He only acts and speaks within the realm of the truth, and falsehood is contrary to His nature. And then number three, God is faithful. He always fulfills all of His promises, and those will be the three headings for the next three chapters. God is true, then God is truthful, and then God is Faithful, faithfulness being an aspect of God's integrity or God's truthfulness. So we begin with God being true or genuine. In the scriptures, the word true is translated from the Hebrew word emet and the Greek word aletheinos. Both words denote not only the truthfulness of God, but also His authenticity. God is genuine or real. He is exactly as He reveals Himself to be. That, that truth there, I think is often best understood when we contemplate how we are not this way. We like to think that we are this way. We like to say, well, I'm just being real. Or I just want somebody to be real with me. I just like people who are themselves. No, we don't. We don't like that. We don't want that. We don't portray that very often. We're not like this. Very often what we put out, outward, in front of others, is not really exactly parallel with who we are internally. Now sometimes that's, that's a good thing because we're, we're concealing or trying to hide what would be corruption and would be detrimental. But very often... Um, it's not good. It's, we're, we, we are attempting to cover up what we know is not presentable. God is not that way. God is exactly as He reveals Himself to be. He is not a counterfeit, a fake, an invention, or a mere imitation. He is the one true and living God, distinct from the idols made by the hands of men and the false gods born in the corrupt imaginations. Of men, So that's going to be sort of the summary that we're going to see is this, this trueness or genuineness or authenticity of God as He is compared with 
other false notions of a God or a deity, but we begin first by considering, as we often do, names that are given to God. In Scripture, a name is often the means through which the character of a person is revealed. So we have here four texts that give us names or descriptions of God, and then the question is, what does this reveal about God's authenticity? The first text we can turn to is Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. And we'll come back to this portion later on. Jeremiah 10.10 says, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure His indignation. So we see here, very simply put, He is the true God, And we'll come back to the the whole chapter later, but this is being set over against all false gods. God is the living God, as opposed to what we would call dead idols, things that do not have life, things that men make. He is true. And there again, he reiterates the meaning of that word true, emet. It denotes not only that God is true, but that He's faithful. And then the adjective living is translated from the Hebrew word che and is often used to contrast the true God with lifeless idols. These words in Scripture, true and faithful, are sort of like uh, what we saw last week with God's righteousness and justice. The original words and the way that they're translated often have such a, a, a correlation between them that they will be, they will, they're almost interchangeable at times. Um, So when you see true and then eventually we'll get to the faithfulness of God, they're connected. So God is the true God and He is the living God. Then we have John 17, 3. You can turn there, the, the high priestly prayer of the Lord. Our Lord prays, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So there we see the Christ, the Son, He's speaking to the Father, and He says, you are the only true God. So again, there's only one true, that is real actual, legitimate, authentic God. Everything else is either imaginary, demonic, or both. As Paul says uh, in the New Testament, it's also said in the Old Testament that what pagans offer to idols, they offer to demons. So, though they may refer to them as gods, and the Bible will even use the term gods to refer to that which is false, we have to understand there's only one true, real God. And he makes this note that Jesus uses two powerful adjectives to prove the authenticity of God. He is truly God and He is the one and only true God. 
That's the point. Now, somebody might read this and they might say, well, here we have the Son praying to the Father and the Son says, you are the one true God and therefore the Son can't really be God. Jesus is not God. But here he makes, he clarifies. It's important to note that Jesus is not denying his own deity. Rather, he is speaking as the mediator between God and man. That's why we call this the high priestly prayer. The fact that Jesus puts Himself in a conjunctive relationship with the Father and declares that the purpose of eternal life is to also know Him is the proof of His deity. So He says, this is eternal life, that they know you and me, the one you've sent. They, they are, he puts Himself there with the Father. He says, if He were not deity, such language would be holy, inappropriate, even blasphemous. So Christ Himself says that there's only one True God. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. This one we'll see again later as well. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had among you or had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So he's, he receives this title, the living and true God. Living, not dead. True, not false, not fake. He's not like the idols of their former blasphemies. They left that to come to the one true God. They did have idols. They did have things that they were worshiping. What he's saying is you left that to come to that which is true because God is the true God. Revelation chapter 6 verse 10. Revelation 6 10. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Now, we look back at verse 9, we see who's speaking. The souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. You remember when we studied the revelation, we saw that very often the, the language of, those, of the martyrs is also connected with the language of all of the saints who had departed. So more than likely, this is representative of all departed saints. They are said to be underneath the altar. They're, they're in the presence of God. They are um, cognizant. They are thinking. They are observing. They are crying out, How long, O Lord, holy and true? So He's holy. They recognize Him as holy. He's in a category all of His own. We've talked about that. And He's also true. He's true to Himself. He's true to His Word. He's true to His infinite perfections. He's true to His promises. Notice that they do not cry out, Will you ever judge and avenge our blood? They say, How long will you refrain? Or how long until you perform this action? In other words, they understand God has made a promise. He said He's going to do something. They are calling upon that. They're referencing that promise. 
In other words, they assume that He is true to His Word. See that? That's a part of being true. What you, in other, they, they could have said, You have said, it is written, that you will judge and avenge the blood of your people. How long until that takes place? Because they trust that He will fulfill His Word. He's true to His Word. But he's, the point there being He's named holy and true. Second point or second section, the following scriptures teach us about uniqueness or the uniqueness and authenticity of God. And there are three texts here. The first one is 2 Samuel 7, 22. So you can turn there. Second Samuel 7, verse 22. For this reason, and this is David praying after hearing that God has come to make a covenant with him. David prays, For this reason you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Now again, the, the topic is concerning the authenticity and, and singularity of God, the, um, I forget how he worded it, the uniqueness and authenticity of God. And so we might read this and we could say, well, this fits in like so many other texts that we've seen. All it's stating is that there is no one else like God. But if we want to try to draw this back specifically to the, the, the genuineness or the trueness of God or veracity of God. <clears throat> we just look back at verse 21 where David says, For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. For this reason you are great, O Lord God, and there is none like you. So David points out God's word and God's heart, or we could say the will of God, and we, we I, I, I think I could just assert this, the will of God, and what he's pointing out, and the revelation of God in His Word, they're always in perfect agreement. They always go together. All that God does will then conform to His will and His revelation in His Word. David's pointing that out. According, for the sake of your Word, what you've said, and according to your own heart, that which you will to do. All of that has funneled down into exactly what is taking place. In other words, God's being true to His own will and His revelation. It's coming to pass. And David says, there's no one like you. There's no one who does this like God does this, we could word this, you are acting in perfect accord with who you are. That's the definition of true. He's true to himself. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60. First Kings eight sixty. Now this is David's son Solomon. He's praying. He says, "So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no one else." Again, there is no one like God. That's the point. He's unique. He's singular. 
Here we see that God is, is concerned through the prayer of Solomon. God is concerned that all men know that He alone is God and that there is no other and that He's worthy of their worship. But again, if we want to draw this back and tether it to what we've seen about the, the integrity, the genuineness, the trueness of God, look at verse 59. Solomon says, And may these words of mine, which I have made supplication before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that He may maintain the cause of His servant and the cause of His people Israel, as each day requires, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and there is no one else. Uh, if we were to go back into the history of the nation of Israel, we would find out that God had promised that as long as the nation of Israel was obedient, He would provide everything that they needed. He would meet all of their needs. And He had also promised that, they, that He would bring them to a place, uh, a particular place where He would make His name to dwell there with them in their midst so that He could be their God and they could be His people in what we now know as the, the, the land of Israel. So when Solomon prays that you may maintain the cause of your servant and the cause of your people Israel, that's, he's merely calling upon what God had already promised to do. God had said He would do this. So this is a prayer based on God's integrity, God's truthfulness. He's saying, Lord, just continue to do what you have promised to do. Be faithful to your, your servant, that would be Solomon himself, the king, and the people providing all that they need in uh, worship and, and, and in all of their lives. And in this, everybody would know there is no one else like God. He says the declaration occurs, or this declaration occurs in Solomon's benediction after his prayer for the newly constructed temple. It demonstrates Solomon's true motive for asking God to bless his people, that all peoples of the earth might know that the Lord is God and that there is no one Else. In other words, Solomon wants the nations to know, we should want everyone to know, there is no one like our God who makes and keeps covenant with His people. Alright, the next text is Isaiah 46, verse 9. Isaiah 46, 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Assert it again. No one like God, singular and unique in His position as God. Now we'll, we'll look at verse 10 in a little bit, but notice how he goes on to describe this, this particular aspect of His uniqueness. Declaring the end from the beginning... From ancient times, things which have not, not been done, saying, My purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. We can look down at the end of verse 11. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. You, you see, the, the point is, is there's no one like this God who speaks, who declares, who promises, and everything comes to pass down the line just as He said it. That's His truthfulness or His trueness. Everything that comes out of Him and His works is um, exactly congruous with what is in Himself, in His heart, in His will, and even in His, His revelation, His declaration. Again, we're not like this. 
We mask ourselves. We conceal ourselves. We know there's, there's, there are corruptions and things. There are sinful um, uh, quirks in my personality that I don't want other people to really know about or see. And so I will work to try to hide them when I'm around people. And every now and then, let's, let's say the, the issue is uh, anger. Well, if, you, if you're a man given to anger, then more than likely when you're around a presentable uh, company, upstanding people, well, you're going to work to try to harness that. But in a moment of weakness, that might come out. And all of a sudden there we actually have seen the real internal one, who you really are. Very often our families and our spouses will know who we really are as opposed to who we are and what we're like around other people because we mask. God's not that way. There's no masking. There's, it's, he, he is exactly as He's revealed Himself. The third section. To fully understand the significance and importance of the truth we've learned, we must consider the Scriptures that contrast the living God with the lifeless idols and false gods of men. What do the following scriptures teach us about the uniqueness and authenticity of God compared to false gods and lifeless idols? So now we're going to see the same things, not merely in His uniqueness, but as He is compared to false gods and idols. So Psalm 115 verses 3 to 9 is the first passage. Psalm 115 verses 3 through 9. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. What's the comparison? Idols, they have no life. They do nothing. Our God is life and He does. He acts. And not only does He do, but He does whatever He pleases. Idols, even as a lifeless uh, lump of, of wood or gold or silver, uh, they, they, they do not do. They, they are um, constrained to only be able to be subject to being acted upon. In other words, they are only passable. Our God does whatever He pleases. He is impassable, we confess. False idols of men must be toted around and created by the hands of men, not God. And then he, he closes in verse 9 by saying, if you trust in Him, trust Israel, trust in the Lord. This is, this is, these are idols. Here's the true God. Trust in the Lord. And if you trust in Him, you get exactly what you trust in. You get the same unchangeable and unchanging God that has been who He is from the dawn of time. Just as He has been. Just as He says He is. 
If you trust in the Lord, you get the God of the Bible. We don't get a second-rate, closed canon, you know, th- things, are, things have moved on God. No, we get the same God that they had. So trust in Him. He's not changed. Isaiah 46, verses 5 and 10 presents us, or 5 through 10, presents us many of the same truths. Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 10. We read verse verse 9. Now verses 5 through 10. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? That's God's question. And then he describes, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it up on the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Again, these idols have to be uh, designed, created. It says the people put it up on their shoulder. You can imagine a couple of men. Hey, hey, come help me carry this thing. We, our, our minds are taken back to Dagon there, falling down in the temple. Hey, man, help me, help me push our God back up. Stand Him back up. It, it, to even read of it is laughable. It sounds so silly and so foolish, and yet this is idolatry. And yet, in contrast to that, verse 10, our God is the one who declares the end from the beginning. He's the first cause of all things. He speaks into being all things. He declares all things because He is the true God, the authentic, the real God. That's what the text says. Now we'll turn back to Jeremiah chapter 10 where we were just a minute ago, and we'll spend a few more minutes in that section, verses 3 through 16. Again, there's a, what he says there's an excellent comparison between the one true and living God and the lifeless idols and false gods of men. Read the text until you're familiar with its contents and then continue with the following exercise. Now, I won't... I won't read through the whole text from the start. We'll just look at the various places that our our attention is drawn with the the fill in the blank. So the first question, how are the lifeless idols and false gods of men described in this passage? First, idols are nothing more than a delusion. Look at verse 3 of Jeremiah 10. The customs of the peoples are delusion. Verse 8, they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. The NAS translates that, their discipline of delusion. That To me, that's just a really strange way. And, and if we had the time, I would try to explain what's being said there. Um, but the point is, their idol, this thing that they're worshiping, is, is a delusion. And he explains this, this phrase or this word delusion that comes from the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means vapor or breath. Thus it signifies a vanity or a delusion. Idols are such because they are supposed to be powerful 
divine beings when in fact they are not even alive. It's like grasping at fog, a delusion, a vapor. Number two, idols are nothing more than wood cut from a forest. Again, verse 3, because it is wood cut from the forest. Verse 8, their idol is wood. The man who worships an idol worships a lifeless tree. In this instance, not even a tree with, with life still going through it. It's not even producing leaves anymore. We've cut it off from life. It's a lifeless thing. The crown of God's creation is reduced to worshiping a lifeless, mindless plant. For us, the, the thought, if you spent any time cutting firewood, the thought that you would take one of those chunks and say, you know what? I think we got us a God right here. Let's take this in the house. Let's worship this. It sounds foolish, right? It sounds silly. Now we're going to get to the end and we're going to find out we really often do the same thing. We just don't do it with a piece of wood. Number three, idols are nothing more than the work of a man. A craftsman with a cutting tool. Verse 3, the work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. Verse 9, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Uphaz. The work of a craftsman and the hands of a goldsmith. Violet and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skilled men. And, and this, a lot of times this makes us feel... Um, more honorable and, and um, well, I'll just use that word, honorable in our idolatry. You know, you know I, I had a lot of really skilled craftsmen produce this thing. I mean, we had gold brought in. We had silver brought in. Again, it's still foolish. Men refuse to worship the God who made them and instead worship the gods they make themselves. And again, he references Romans 1 that just reminds us of the rebellion of men that they will worship anything besides the one true God. Anything. Give me a piece of wood. Melt some gold and rub it on it. Make it, make it kind of look like a, a person or a cat or a dog or a frog or a lion. Make it look like something. There. That's, that would be better than the one true God. That's, that's the folly of idolatry. Number four, idols are mere decorations of silver and gold. Number Verse four, they decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Verse nine, again, beaten silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Uphaz, etc. They, they're decorating this thing up. And he points out it's nothing more than a piece of wood. It has no intrinsic splendor. And for this reason... He says, it must be decorated and adorned externally. We've got to make it look pretty. This piece of wood doesn't look very pretty. Well, paint it up. There, now it's pretty. It's, it's folly. In contrast to that, he says, God's beauty and majesty are not a veneer. They are intrinsic or inherent. They emanate from who He really is. We don't have to, to decorate God or, or try to paint Him in any picture uh, beyond what He is. He is in Himself intrinsically beautiful and glorious, more, more lovely than any gold or silver or anything that we could ever decorate. Again, the irony that we see here is all of the work that goes into idolatry. 
It's not just, whoops, I slipped and uh, like Aaron said, well, you know, we put all this stuff in the fire and out came this calf. No, it looked like a calf. Somebody had to work to take off their earrings and their bracelets and put it in the fire. Somebody's going to sit here and stir this thing. It's almost melted. There, it's finally melted. Okay, let's, let's pour this into a mold. Let's chisel this thing. All of this work just to keep from worshiping the one true God, but to pacify that urge to worship. Number five, their idols are fastened with nails so that they will not totter. And we just read that in verse four. Fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not totter. The word totter comes from a Hebrew word, puck, which means to reel, wobble, or totter so as to fall. Idols totter and fall over at the slightest nudge, but the one true God upholds the entire universe with the word of His power. What have we seen so many times? God is like a rock, immovable, unshakable. And yet here we have idols Men, they're, they're trying to hammer things to make it... Here, make it firm. Make it sturdy. It might fall over. Hammer it here. Hammer it there. Bend that nail over there. Trying to... Men, let's make this thing something that we can leave and it won't fall over. But that's idolatry. Number six, idols are like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Verse five. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they... And they cannot speak, they must be carried, because they cannot walk. A scarecrow was usually made of straw, thatch, or palm leaves. It was dry, brittle, and lifeless. A pathetic replica or hollow caricature of a man, able to deceive only the most gullible of the lower beasts. If a scarecrow fails miserably to represent a man, how can an idol represent God? It can't. There's no representation. There's nothing that we can make. Number seven, idols cannot speak and they must be carried because they cannot walk. Verse five, they're mute and lame. Even wicked men can boast about power they do not possess, but idols cannot even vainly boast. They can't even brag about themselves. The fact that idols must be carried demonstrates their impotence and uselessness. The true God carries His people. In Deuteronomy 1.31, Moses declared, The Lord your God carried you just as a man carries his son. You can imagine those men that set up Dagon. They're sweating from their labor. Why, why are you guys sweating? What you been doing? Well, just standing up Dagon. Working. You, you've been exerting yourself to keep up your God. And yet our God comes and He says, I will carry you. And it's no, no loss of strength or power from Him. Number eight, idols can neither can do neither harm nor good. Verse 5, because they cannot walk, it says, Do not fear them, for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. For this reason, idols are neither to be feared for the punishment that their devotees pretend that they can inflict, nor to be adored and thanked for the good that is wrongly attributed to them. Number 9, idols are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. Verse 14, For his molten images are deceitful, and there is no breath in them. The word deceitful is translated from the Hebrew word sheker, which also means deception, disappointment, falsehood, or lie. An idol that has no breath cannot give life to men, but the true and living God gives life and breath to all. 
And he references Job 33 and 34. For this reason, everything that has breath should praise the Lord. Psalm 150, verse 6. Number 10, idols are worthless. Verse 15, they are worthless. The word is translated from the Hebrew word hebel, which literally means vapor or breath. Same word we saw before. Number 11, idols are a work of mockery that will perish under the judgment of God. Verse 15, they are worthless, a work of mockery. In the time of their punishment, they will perish. The word mockery is translated from the Hebrew word tattooim. There are two possible meanings. One, idols are mere objects to be mocked. Or two, they are a delusion to those who trust in them. Both ideas are true. Now again, we read all of that and we say, this is so silly. We'll go on to the next point. How are idolaters, those who trust and reverence idols, how are they described? What, how does the Bible describe such people? Verse 8, But they are altogether stupid and foolish in their discipline of delusion. Their idol is wood. People who trust in idols are stupid and foolish. He explains these words. Stupid comes from the Hebrew word ba'ar, which may also be translated brutish or senseless. The word foolish comes from the Hebrew word kasal, which may be translated stupid. Both words are harsh, but true deceptions of men who worship, serve, and care for lifeless idols that have been made with their own hands. Sometimes we have, you may have rules in your household that say, you know, in, in our house we don't use the word stupid. Um, well, I, that, that might be a good rule, but I would appeal it. It could be that word might be just reserved for the kind of people who worship idols and idols themselves because it's a biblical idea. Verse 14, Every man is stupid, devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his molten images are deceitful and there is no breath in them. Again, stupid and devoid of knowledge. Those who worship idols are without knowledge, void of knowledge, or aloof from knowledge. They're ignorant of the truth and have little grasp on reality. Again, we would watch it. We would say, what are you doing? You're going to take that piece of wood there, you fashion it into an idol. Yeah. And then that's going to be your God. Yeah. And you're going to trust in that God. Yeah. We'd say, you've, you're, you don't have a grasp on reality. But that is, again, the foolishness of idolatry. There's only one true God. And here the next question says, How is the true and living God of the Scriptures described in the following verses? Verses 6 and 7. I'll read those. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name and might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For among all the wise men of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. How does God compare? There is no comparison. Beyond in every way. Unlike idols and, and, and false uh, images in every way. In, in this we would say our God is great. The word great, remember, means He excels. He's far beyond, outside of, beyond, in every way. God is great. Just like we would say the worshiping of idols is the height of folly. 
Well, the flip side of that coin is not worshiping and fearing the true God is also the height of folly. He says, who would not fear you? The same thing. This is the same idea. If you're worshiping idols, you're not worshiping the true God. If you're not worshiping the true God, you are worshiping some kind of idol. As Romans 1 shows us, this is the pitfall of all men. We exchange the glory of God. We trade it for created things. And that is the great foolishness and the bondage of the human race. That we're blinded in our sin, we reject the one true God, and we will worship literally anything, images of birds and man and creeping things and beasts, the, the, anything we can find. But God is the true God, not even to be compared. Verse 10, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. Our God is the true God. Again, He's the living God. He's the everlasting King. Verses 12 and 13. It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding has stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens, and He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from His storehouses. How does God compare? They are made from created things. God, on the other hand, made all things. He made the earth, established the world, stretched out the heavens. God, the true God, is the executor of every element in the natural world. Every every powerful force, every storm, every wind, every drop of rain, every lightning bolt, every thundercloud. All of it He puts forth and brings forth. It all comes forth by the sound of His voice. I've been able to see recently again videos of people as they watch these horrible storms pass through. There's one now where a guy's in his backyard. You can see there's trees everywhere. The storm comes through. He goes back out. Nothing. It's just gone. Trees. Gone. That which men would cut down, fashion into an idol, take into their house and worship. God says, and just blows it away in a matter of seconds. That's what our God does with the sound of His voice. Not even to be compared. So then, the fifth heading. In light of what we've learned about the glory of the one true God and the vanity of dumb idols and false gods, how should we live? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Let's turn there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The very first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's how we should live. That's our standard. That's the rule. No other gods. And then he takes us also to chapter 23, verse 13 of Exodus. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard. And do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. We see here that it is 
it would be folly, absolute folly, to even entertain the thought of idols or other gods. And we also see here that it's blasphemous to worship other gods. The fact that there is the one true God means the addition or the creation or the invention or the idea of any others is the epitome of insanity. Why? Because there is the one true. If there is the one true, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever to even look at other gods or even entertain the idea of idolatry. Back to the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5. This is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. And then the other text that he gives is Leviticus 19.4. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Now, the question is how should we live? There is one true God. The first commandment deals with who that God is. The second commandment deals with how we are to worship that God. The one true God has revealed Himself specifically as He is and as He would have us to know Him. God has not revealed all that there is to know about God. There are infinite mysteries that that we will spend eternity delving into and probably never uh, fully come to. But He has revealed to us all that He would have us to know in His Word. And that also includes how we are to worship Him. You see, God's... God's desire and God's uh, requirements for worship, what He wants to happen, that's a part of who He is. His, that, that is his, from His will inside of Him. He's, he's um, let us know, I, my desire is that you worship this way, and that will in God is God. That's His desire. And so if we would uh, even begin to entertain the thought of worshiping in any way other than the way that He has revealed, any other way than He has prescribed, that again is committing the same sin of idolatry. And the way that He concludes that commandment by describing those that do this as those who hate Me lets us know that. When you invent your own ways of worship, what you're saying is, I see that there's a God. I see that He's given prescriptions. I don't like that about Him. We'll make up our own way of worship. And again, it's idolatry. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 again. How should we live in light of this? For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So we, 
we, we learn here that as Christians, or Christian salvation, we could say, is not simply adding another God into, another, an, uh, in, into a catalog or list of gods, but it is turning from every other idol and to the one true living God. And so that's how we should be. Our lives should be that type of life, a, a constant ever and always turning away from anything that could even be a temptation to idolatry and keeping our eyes fixed on the one true God and worshiping Him in truth. And then 1 John 5, 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Eternal life, as we saw in John 17, is in its substance knowing God. If we've been brought into a relationship with God, if we've been saved, that means we've been our eyes have been opened. We have been brought to know God. We've brought, been brought into that fellowship. And, and we know God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we must not only guard ourselves from idols, as it says in verse 21, but I would say positively, and I say this often, study Christ. Study Him. Get the Word of God. Get a stack of books about Christ and just absorb all that you can about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when you learn of Christ and study and know Christ and the gospel and what He's done, you are learning of God. He is the fullest and truest revelation of God Himself. That is the best way to guard yourself from idols. When you see how glorious the one true God is, especially in His Son, you see idols are silly. Anything else that anybody would put in front of my eyes, it is worthless. Is that thing going to draw me away from Christ? No thank you. Is that going to make me give more extracurricular thought to something besides Christ? No thank you. We we even struggle with how to balance the the duties that God has given us that are good duties and how to give our minds to them properly and not be drawn away from thoughts of Christ. That's a struggle, or it should be, for every believer because we want to have our minds full of Christ. And when you do that, anything the world presents you, you say, "That's, that's paltry, that's less than nothing. Why would I even waste my time? So then he concludes very quickly in, in verse 6 with basically just some questions. It's extremely important to understand that idolatry can take many forms. If we give preference to anyone or anything above God, then we are guilty of idolatry. If we give preference to anyone or anything above God, we are guilty of idolatry. The joys and pleasures of this present world, careers, ministries, hobbies, and especially self are some of the more common idols found among men. Prayerfully consider this truth and then answer the following questions. Now, I won't answer. I won't ask everybody to give their answer, but here are the questions. And you've got them there if you've got the book. What is most dear to you? What is most dear to you? 
And then number two, what most occupies your thought life? Now really, you can answer the first question by answering the second. What most occupies your thought life? That is the thing that's most dear to you. That's it. We live in a, a culture where it's easy to say, well, well you, I, I put God first or, or whatever. God's number one. Well, what does that mean? If, if we were asked, what, what is most dear to you? Most of us would say, well, well obviously God. We're, we're in a situation where there's no, no, no competition at that point. When there's, a, when there's a competing loyalty, then we find out which is actually most dear. What is most dear to you? What occupies your thoughts? Now, I would suggest that other people who know you best, who are around you most, they already know what's most dear to you because it comes out. They hear it in your words. They hear it in, in the things that you think about. They, they see it. So it might be a good application to find somebody like that that's near you, that's around you all the time, spends a lot of time with you, and ask them, hey, be honest with me. What is most dear to me? If you observe my life, you hear my conversation, you hear my words, you see how I spend my time, you see how I spend my money, what is most dear to me? And be honest. And they'll tell you. They can see it because it shows. It comes out. I wonder how many of us would be willing to, to do that, to ask and have somebody do that for us. As I walked through personally, I, I, I went through these categories. Self, success, possessions, entertainment, hobbies. I, I just got a piece of paper and put all of those as headings and then listed all of these various areas where idolatry creeps in in, in these forms. And it was, it was a, a very convicting exercise for me to realize if, if these are the categories, then I've, I, I am, am, am guilty very often of drifting into idolatry, of giving my mind to things, to giving myself to pursuits that are not of God. And I think if we're honest, we, we, if we all sat down and we're honest, we would find out that is very true of many of us. Idolatry is not just fashioning a piece of wood. That sounds silly to us. But in comparison to God, so many of the things that we give our time and thought to are silly. It's silly. So take some time with, this, with those questions if you haven't and, and consider them deeply and be honest. Um, I don't think we should be afraid that God would would reveal to us the truth so that we can begin to purge ourselves of, of idolatry. We have to always be turning away and uh, turning our attention to God. So then let's close with uh, singing hymn number, hymn, or hymn number 26 and then we'll be dismissed.